Hello and welcome to the premiere episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. We are coming to you from STAT's global headquarters here in Boston. It is Thursday, March 8th, and here's what we're gonna talk about this week. Martin Ciccarelli will find out how long he'll spend behind bars. Private biotech companies can pick and choose what they tell the public, and sometimes that's bad. Everyone talks about the benefits of the biotech boom, but what if it goes bust? And finally, Rebecca will tell us what it was like to go to a society gala in West Palm Beach, Florida to learn about young blood transfusions. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. So we're recording this on Thursday, which means if you're listening to it over the weekend, you might know things we don't know. In fact, you almost certainly do. But anyway, we are now a day away from learning how long Martin Shkreli will spend in prison after his conviction for securities fraud. Well, ahead of Martin Shkreli's sentencing date set for this Friday, the federal judge in that case has ruled on the amount he has to forfeit, uh, $7.36 million. I imagine Martin is probably pretty stressed out today. But what uh, what do you think his options are? What, what kind of jail time are we talking about here? So at the lower end, Martin could just get time served, which means he could be back entertaining us on YouTube, live streaming in his pajamas in a matter of days. Then at the higher end, Martin could get a maximum sentence of 20 years, meaning he would be in his early 50s by the time he gets out. For what it's worth, prosecutors asked for a 15-year sentence, but take that with a grain of salt because it doesn't necessarily mean much. So Adam, remind us, why is Martin behind bars in the first place? Well, you know, if you, if you, I think if you polled Americans on, on why Martin was arrested and why we've gone through this whole thing, there'd be a large percentage of people who think that he got arrested and was convicted because he raised the price of Daraprim, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, don't, don't we feel that way? Oh, without a doubt. I'd say it would be at least 50%. Yeah. And in fact, you know, this whole thing has nothing to do with jacking up the price of Daraprim. You know, Martin was convicted of defrauding investors in hedge funds, the hedge funds that he ran. And, you know, the jury found him guilty of uh, lying, uh, lying to those investors about his performance. And they also found him guilty of secretly plotting to control shares of the company uh, Retrofin. Right. And what was fascinating about that is, is the legal defense was a nuance of logic, as I recall, because what his attorneys kept asserting was that it can't be fraud because he eventually made his investors whole, the ones who lost money. Right, but, right. But the actual charges were that he broke the law in order to make them whole. So their argument was basically, no, no, it's not fraud because he was really good at doing fraud. Yeah, and it was pretty much a minor, sort of a minor white-collar criminal kind of, you know, offense that he was convicted of. But what's interesting here, I think, is that, you know, sort of these two stories are conflated, you know, the farmer bro Mm -hmm. story and then, you know, what he actually was convicted of and now he's ultimately going to be sentenced for. So last September, Martin had his bail revoked after offering $5,000 to anyone on social media who could grab a strand of Hillary Clinton's hair. (laughs) And he's been sitting in jail in Brooklyn ever since. Now, Adam, how unusual is it for a white-collar criminal to be denied bail before sentencing? Yeah, this is this is like sort of the rem- most remarkable and sort of sad part of the whole Martin story to me. Because if you think about it, like I said, this is a minor white-collar crime. Uh, and he actually had his bail revoked prior to sentencing. So he's been sitting in jail for something like six months now. If you think about sort of the pantheon of white-collar criminals, you know, Jeff Skilling from Enron, Bernie Evers from WorldCom, you know, Martha Stewart... They all got out on bail 
and then eventually went to jail. But Martin, because of all sort of the trolling behavior, being sort of this unrepentant jerk mm -hmm. that he was, he gets thrown in jail during this time. And that's kind of, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of the read through for Friday is that, as you mentioned, it's a fairly minor white collar crime and you would have assumptions about sentencing based on the past, but those assumptions have been broken throughout the whole Martin saga because every white collar criminal we have to reflect upon didn't go on Facebook yeah. and ask for the hair I mean, of the Rebecca, president. Think, like, you know, if Martin had acted differently during the trial, before the trial, do you think that sort of behavior, the whole farmer bro thing is contributing to the fact that he may spend a considerable amount of time in jail? Oh, without a doubt. I think the reason we got to where we are is because he became this scapegoat for drug pricing. Uh, it's pretty remarkable that we saw virtually zero sign of contrition from Martin until he finally wrote a letter at the end of February, uh, finally expressing uh, remorse. You have to wonder what situation would Martin be in if he had written that letter months, couple yeah, of years yeah. ago. I mean, I think it would be a different situation. I think that he wouldn't be facing as much time yeah. as he's facing. I mean, he'd painted this gigantic target on his back. But let's pivot over to sort of like the drug industry, because obviously that's what we're talking about here. I mean, how do you think sort of biotech guys and, and pharma guys are thinking about Martin, you know, as he's about to go to prison? On the one hand, you would think that there's some contingent of people that just wants him to go away. And if he's locked up, he can't be on Twitter, one assumes. Um, and thus, maybe this whole thing will be put to bed. But the other thing is that Martin has become a very convenient scapegoat for people in the industry to point to and say, that's not us. Yeah, he's the drug pricing boogeyman, yeah. really. It was remarkable last June at Bio how many drug executives up on stage at panels and in, in informal conversations kept shading Martin as the guy in the hoodie. We're not the guy in the hoodie. And it'll be interesting to see if Martin's locked up this year around with, during bio, uh, whether that excuse is still, is still there. So, so meanwhile, drug prices just keep going higher. Yeah, I mean, there's a headline at least once a month about company X that raised the price of drug Y by 1,000% and life just continues apace. They're just more polite about it. Well. Good luck, Martin. So a rough thing about being a privately held company is you can't raise money that easily on the stock market, or you can't raise money on the stock market at all. But one thing that's really cool about being a private company is you don't have to tell people what you're actually doing. And that brings us to Unum Therapeutics. Adam, I liked the lead you wrote on your story about Unum this week, which compared private biotechs to Instagram posts. You wrote that the glossy, successful image they choose to share can hide darker truths. Do you think private biotechs have a problem with transparency, especially when it comes to reporting bad news? You know, I do, Rebecca. You know, Unum is this buzzy T-cell cancer immunotherapy startup. Um, you know, it has a bunch of high-profile backers, including the VC firm Atlas Venture. Um, and like all privately held biotechs, Unum courts publicity uh, and the media when it has a lot of good news to share. But when they have bad news, that doesn't necessarily make it into the press release. Exactly. So Unum just filed for an $86 million IPO, uh, and, and there, right in its SEC filing, is a disclosure about two cancer patients who died from toxicity related to their T-cell therapy. The FDA also placed their study on hold for, for two months. So, you know, that's kind of the darker truth here that Unum kept selectively disclosed at best, and, you know, until they absolutely had to say something publicly. 
To be clear though, Unum didn't do anything illegal, right Adam? Yeah, I mean, like, like all private companies and like Damien had said earlier, you know, Unum has no legal or financial requirements to disclose information publicly. So the company sort of can maintain this outward all is good appearance. Uh, and then, you know, if, if bad news happens, they either can closet it or they just don't have to say anything at all. And this is more than just Unum. I mean, this is sort of a private biotech thing and even beyond biotech. Intarsia was a company whose uh, med implantable medical device got rejected by the FDA and there was sort of this long silent period where everyone was wondering what was going on. Had they been publicly traded, they would have had to tell people immediately. Moderna Therapeutics, same thing. They've had issues with preclinical assets, I've been told, but that was something I had to be told by former employees, not by Moderna in a press release. Right, sure. You know, and then there's Theranos, obviously, which is probably like the, you know, the Big Mac daddy of all of this stuff, right? I mean, like, talk about a company that kind of kept all sort of the bad news hidden away until it was, until it had to be uncovered by a reporter. So, you know, that's probably the best example. So what's the counter argument here? What argument do the private companies make about why they ought to be able to share news at their own discretion? They can say whatever they want to say. And I think the companies will probably tell you that, uh, you know, that they try to be responsible about the kind of information that they put out. Uh, but again, I, I think because there's so much money being poured into these private biotech companies, these days, they love that attention. They love the, the fact that everyone is sort of writing about this money that's sloshing around. But I think there, at some point there becomes a responsibility where we have to sort of know what's on the other side of that. Well, and that's the other side of it, too, with the availability of private money. That is what allows there to be an enchanted forest full of unicorns. And this has happened in tech, and it's sort of happening in biotech now. The unicorn phenomenon is also sort of a public disclosure phenomenon, which is to say that if you can raise a series E, F, G, double B, or whatever Intarsia was up to round and stay private, then you can maintain that same secrecy in perpetuity. And I think, you know, for, for the minds of investors, that creates risk. It's nice when there's a publicly traded company and you can, as you did with the Unum thing, go through their government filings and learn everything about them. It's difficult to gauge how valuable a company is when you can only read press releases. And we're likely to see more of this because Series A rounds keep getting bigger and bigger. This whole issue is not going away. Welcome to Trading Nation, I'm Seema Modi, and today let's talk biotech because Rebecca, Damien, uh, you guys both wrote great stories this week related to the somewhat frothy investment climate for biotech and consumer genomics. Is this a bubble that's going to burst? Well, I don't know, uh, but all the past bubbles have. So the way things are going, at least on the biotech side, people I talk to are a little bit antsy. There is sort of this virtuous cycle that people count on by which venture capitalists invest money in startup companies that then progress to the point where they can either go public and they can get returns or get sold to pharma. And then the VCs count their money, they give some to their limited partners and they start the cycle all over again and everybody gets rich. The problem is, in order for the boom that we're currently in to continue, every cog in that machine has to stay healthy. And so there are concerns about where there might be rust forming or where things might be getting a little overheated. But that's in biotech, people developing drugs. Rebecca, you talk to VCs who are in the consumer genomic space, which is just like swimming in money right now. What's going on there? People love consumer genomics right now. The business is a shiny new toy that people want to play with. You just ask consumers to pay you money to spit in a tube, and then you'll deliver insights about their genetics, their diet, their proclivity for sports and fitness. It's really this kind of shark tank test of a business model. You can envision it you know, being sort of palatable to audiences watching CNBC. Uh, but then beyond kind of the flash and, and glitz here, 
there are real questions about the business model. How do you get consumers to buy in long term? And how do you make sure that the data you're collecting is not a commodity? And yet the money just keeps coming. Consumer genomics companies based in the United States raised more money in the past 14 months than they did in the entire six years prior. That's data that came from the venture fund Rock Health, which tracks companies in, in digital health. And so that kind of tracks with a theme that I think we've been seeing in a lot of spaces, which is the checks are getting bigger, but we're not seeing more companies raising money. Did you hear that, Damien? I did, yeah. So I talked to Julie Grant, who's a VC at Canaan, and she made the point that you know she knows lots of funds that three years ago were writing $20 million checks, and today they're writing $40 million checks, and it's not because the cost of drug development got twice as expensive. And so the issue kind of is, you know, these VC firms are partnerships, they reap the windfalls of a boom cycle, and so they have more cash, but they don't generally expand the partnership. So it's the same finite number of human beings who have a finite capacity to do deals, so they just up the dollar size. And the risk there, I think, in the minds of investors is that that also ups the valuation of these private companies, which means when they go kaput, if they go kaput, you're writing off $100 million instead of 50, which it would have been maybe three years ago. So I'll ask again, Damien, uh, are we headed for a crash? So everybody I talked to were mostly investors and analysts who are sort of necessarily positive about things in biotech. But I, as a sort of in genetically negative person, had to kind of twist their arms about what keeps them up at night. I think there's enough potential out there for events to take place that would drag the sector down. If, for example, Biogen's Alzheimer's drug doesn't work, that'll be really bad for the whole NASDAQ biotech index. Same thing for Insight's cancer drug. Similarly, we were talking about the valuations on some of these private firms. If they can't go public, if they're forced into infinite pivots, that has an effect on everything. So I don't think there's, I don't think anybody would reasonably tell you that, yes, this is a bubble and it's going to burst on a specific date or based on a specific event. But I think there's a growing consensus that it's a little shaky right now, and probably we're in for a correction. Rebecca, you embarked on sort of a Florida project of your own recently, going down there to meet a researcher with some interesting ideas about anti-aging. How was that? It was interesting. So I went down there to cover a symposium. There was lots of catered food and live musicians. The event was dressed up as one of the many society events on the calendar here for the wealthy baby boomers who spend the winter in Florida. So this event was put on by a Florida doctor trying to recruit enrollees for a clinical trial he's planning. I got a close-up view of how promoters sell scientifically dubious elixirs to aging people who are desperate to live longer. And this was not just kind of like some guy selling snake oil, right, Rebecca? I mean, there's like an actual clinical trial that he's trying to run here? That's right. So the idea is that healthy young people between the ages of 18 and 35, so basically Damien and me, get injected with a drug called GCSF, and that's meant to stimulate the immune system. Then these donors would get their plasma collected. The idea is to infuse that plasma into frail baby boomers between the ages of 55 and 95. So basically Adam in a few years. Wait a second. You're calling me frail? In a few years. You've got a few years of vitality left. Okay. All right. That's fine. All right. So people like Adam can pay big to get transfusions of that plasma. There won't be a placebo group, though, which concerned experts I talked to. You mentioned the cost of that study, and I know in your reporting on, on, this, on this symposium that there's a significant cost, right, that they're asking or supposedly asking patients to pay. Can you, what, what, how much is this going to cost people? The figure I heard was $285,000 to participate in the whole trial. Now, the PI of the project told me that that figure may still change. Now, 
I know we we write about a lot about clinical trials uh, here at Stat, and I don't know of many clinical trials of where I write about where patients actually have to pay to to enter into a study. It's usually the other way around, or patients get free drug, free medical care. So why why are patients having to pay to get into these clinical trials? It's a real red flag. The idea, ostensibly, for pay-to-participate trials is that this is research that's too novel, too unusual, or has too little profit incentive to get the traditional sources of funding. Uh, but you have to wonder, you know, why aren't drug companies interested? Why aren't foundations interested? Uh, there's often a good reason why you can't get traditional sources of funding. Your story had this great kicker at the end about uh, well, I want you to talk about it, but it it's basically involves a fireproof helmet and airplane crashes. Why don't you tell us about that? So I interviewed one of the promoters that's involved in this clinical trial. His name is Bill Falloon, and he's an evangelist for anti-aging research, been in the space for decades. And he told me quite a colorful story. He told me that whenever he used to go on airline flights, he would lug in his carry-on bag a thermally insulated helmet. And during takeoff and landing, of course, the most dangerous part of a flight, he would put on his helmet so that in the event the plane crashed and burned, his head could still be salvaged and frozen. <laughs> can, can you imagine sitting next to this guy on an airplane? You guys don't do that? Uh, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> well, in fact, this guy doesn't do it either, he told me, partly because he's not sure whether it will work. The other reason, though, because it's too much trouble to get his helmet through TSA. First they come for your shoes, and then they're taking away your flame-retardant head preservation helmet. You know, guys, since you insisted on calling me old, I'll remind you of the Rod Stewart song, May I Stay Forever Young. And that does it for this, the inaugural episode of The Read Out Loud. This week's episode was produced by Matthew Orr, Hyacinth Empanado, and Alex Hogan. Rick Burke is our executive producer. If you have thoughts about what you just heard and what you'd like to hear in the future, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us by emailing readoutloud at statnews.com. See you next week. Sorry,